Hello and welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, we are currently working our way through the stories Lovecraft wrote in the mostly the second half of nineteen of the nineteen twenties, um, and specifically we're looking at the Call of Cthulhu. I started my look at this story in the previous episode, uh, where I gave my overall views and and. Uh, hopefully kind of give you a run through of the first part of Call of Cthulhu. I'm going to finish it up in this episode. Uh, there are two more parts to the tale. In fact, the bulk of the story uh, is here. Um, but with kind of my main ideas out of the way, I think we can kind of get through this. Um, so um, now this is the nested story right where we have a little bit of what the narrator does but he's not that much i mean basically he's following a few leads uh, most of the work was done by his great uncle and um and angle who died uh, prior to the events of the story but he had it all in this box right so it had two main kind of case studies one is from this one year before he died the case of wilcox in which this young man started having dreams over like a two-week period at the end of um, March, early April of 1926. Um, yeah, 1925, sorry, 1925. And then we have, uh, that story is covered, and that's like a personal recollection of, of Angel, Angel. And then we have the tale of Inspector Legrasse, which was a story that he came across actually about 20 years earlier in 1908 while at an academic conference of, of anthropologists and linguists and such. And so basically what happened, this was in 19, 1908, um, the American Archaeological Society, that was it, was having this meeting in St. Louis. Uh, Angel was there as, you know, a prestigious professor. He was already like 70-something when he was at that conference. He died when he was 92. So he was already over 70. He's already a prestigious guy, a uh, well-known professor in his field. And he's there. And basically this policeman from New Orleans kind of barges in with this statue and that he found during a raid he inflicted on, on a cult in New Orleans. And, of course, the other anthropologists look at this and he actually is able to recite some of the words that these cultists in New Orleans uh, said, such as like, primarily Cthulhu Fatagan. Um, and actually, the whole phrase given by uh, Wilcox. Does Wilcox give the whole phrase? Maybe he doesn't. He doesn't give the whole phrase, but it, we forget the whole the whole phrase here. Uh, in his house at Relay, that Cthulhu waits dreaming. It's I'm not going to really try to pronounce try to pronounce it. Different audiobook readers have had different attempts with this, but it's like Funulin Mithwagen Cthulhu Relay with Ganarlin Fatagen. Now, Wilcox had the Cthulhu Fatagan part of it, but the whole phrase is, in his house in Relay, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. And this was first heard by this linguist who studied like the Eskimos. And it was actually a degenerate tribe of Eskimos, is how it's described in the book. And this isn't the first time in Lovecraft's writing that we come across Eskimos. It's actually, it shows up a few times in the story. I think once in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, of course in Polaris, they're presented there as kind of the ancestors or the descendants of the barbarians who overthrew that civilization described in Polaris. Um, um, of course, being Polaris, it was kind of had something to do with the North Star, right? But this was a degenerate Eskimo cult that was basically worshiping Cthulhu, right? And this one professor, his name is Webb, 
you know, remembered this and was able to connect this experience that Lagrasse was talking about in New Orleans with the this cult he met there. So this idea that the cult is global, right? We know the events of late March were global from the clippings that Angel had kind of collected. Uh, he used a clipping agency to do that. Um, but there, there's actually this global network of believers of Cthulhu as revealed by this. And I think the Eskimos even had the similar statue to the one that Lagrasse was able to find in New Orleans. So then Lagrasse eventually ends up telling his story of this voodoo cult in New Orleans. And this for me is the most interesting part of this entire story because it's the part that really gets into this 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 kind of terror of the working class that is so much in Lovecraft's heart and mind. We've, of course, seen it again and again, primarily in, I think, uh, Horror at Red Hook prior to this, but it's there all the time. It's there in Kadath. It's there in... Uh, now, in Charles Dexter Ward, it's a little bit twisted. It's there... The working class is more the victim of, of Kerwin. We'll get to that story soon enough. Um, that might... Sh- be a switch in his perspective as he gets more cosmic as lovecraft gets more cosmic more uh you know starts talking about these gods and things you know in the in kind of deep time like in shadow of time and at the moment of madness though like the activities of marginalized people maybe are less important but at this point in his career he really is emphasizing the danger of these marginalized people right because as in kadath story we'll get to four parts coming up shortly but as in kadath as in this as in the red hook story this international interracial polyglot working class that's in america in its cities but also global interconnected by ideas is also a victim of of capitalism i i'm forgetting insmouth and all this and i shouldn't be because insmouth is making the same case. I mean, I, I think the argument of Innsmouth is we didn't, we ignore the working class at our own peril. And, you know, speaking, just we're now coming out of the Trump era as I'm recording this. Um, Biden has just been declared victor in the 2020 election. But in many ways, I think we'll still be in the Trump era for a while, right? That's one of the lessons, right? The political lesson of the Trump era is you ignore the marginalized people at your own risk. Right, the Democratic Party can simply be a party of coastal technocratic elite, and I think the last election, even though Biden pulled it off, it still kind of shows signs that that's still the case. Right, that there's still that that the system is stuck with a large number of people that it doesn't quite need, it can't really fully ignore, it doesn't quite know what to do with them, and I think Lovecraft's in that situation as well. Like on the one hand, his worldview doesn't need these people. His worldview is that of the Romans and of the civilized and of the 19th century British elite, all that. It's there in Lovecraft's mind as kind of the ideal civilization. But around all that, around that world, you can build your walls all you want. But around that is an amorphous, interconnected, diverse, polyglot, multiracial, working class, a mobile powerful people powerful in their ideas powerful just in their 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 ability to inflict you know to inflict a challenge culturally politically socially you know to the ruling order they're there and they and you can't really ignore them right 
You can ignore Innsmouth partially, but eventually they'll come to come back and get you. Right? And the same with these cults. Right? And I think the most important thing about Lovecraft is that these villains are the working class. They're also victims of, of a global system that doesn't need them. And, you know, I guess that's the key point of this whole podcast, I guess, this whole series of this read-through podcast I'm, I'm working on here. So I'm going to repeat it a lot, but if you, if you, I mean, if you're not with me on this point, I really don't know what to tell you. I, I just don't see how we can't see it. And maybe no episode in all of Lovecraft's fiction, especially from this period, says this as well as does the New Orleans cult, the, the case of Inspector LaGrosse. Um, now, this voodoo cult, it's actually, first we get kind of rumors of it in 1907. This is 17, 18 years before the rising of Cthulhu, right? Which happens, of course, during that two-week period that we, you know, where everyone's going nutty around the world. And Wilcox is, paint, is carving his statues and doing in his weird dreams. Um, but this voodoo cult, well, they're kind of called voodoo for lack of anything better to call them at the time but they're in these they're they're living out in the woods they're having weird orgies again it's all multiracial um, we'll get the description of the people soon enough um, certainly they're called half castes and pariahs uh, when we they're first mentioned they're called kind of a voodoo cult they're stealing people kidnapping people they're murdering people doing horrific things uh, you know they're having at night these weird ceremonies with these muffled tom-toms and the red glare in the swamps around new orleans um so let's see if we can find some of these descriptions of these of these folk now it's not clear who they are right away but the police come in like in force it's like 20 people including lagrasse come in heavily armed with their cars to break up this cult um and there's even like hints of monsters seen there in fact the cultists end up blaming monsters for a lot of the violence here. There is, there actually are monsters here. For instance, we get the faint beating of great wings, a glimpse sh of shimmering eyes, and a mountainous white bulk beyond the remotest trees. Lagrasse doesn't fully believe it, but we as readers are supposed to believe that participating in this bacchanalia, this bacchanal, is our monsters of various sorts, apparently arisen. It's kind of like the festival in that way. Um... But what about these? We got, um, they eventually arrest 47 of these people. So others are killed. So the cult's bigger than that. Five dead, two severely wounded. So we're talking about over 50 people in this cult. Um, and here's the description of them. Most were seamen and a sprinkling of Negroes and mulattoes, largely West Indians or Brava Portuguese from the Cape Verde Islands, gave a coloring of voodooism to a heterogeneous cult. But... Before many questions were asked, it became manifest that something far deeper and older than Negro fetishism was involved. Degraded and ignorant as they were, the creatures held with surprising consistency to the central idea of their loathsome faith. I'll get to that faith in a minute, because it's, I think, important. Uh, now, as for these people, the Brava Portuguese, these are... Um, well, here's uh, Klinger's notes on it. The most southerly of the Cape Verde Islands, Brava is a volcano. Um, so these are, now the Cape Verde Islands, this is where you go if you want to get like the early beginnings of Atlantic history, right? Uh, I think Atlantic history is 
key to maybe unlocking a lot of what Lovecraft's doing here. That's that's kind of the manuscript I'm I'm sort of trying to put together here. Um, and this podcast is helping me work out my ideas personally as well as sharing them with you. But the Brava Portuguese, these are, you know, people who left Portugal, went to these islands. These were places where there were slaves, indentured servants. It wasn't many indigenous people, but it was still an Atlantic space, a space that these places got converted to like sugar islands. They were places of the slave trade. Um, the Cape Verde Islands may be more so, like Madeira may be more of a sugar island, but the Cape Verde Islands may be more tied to the slave trade. But these are themselves biracial places. I think to look a, dig up a history of the Cape Verde Islands, you would find a lot of cultural mixing and racial mixing going on there. Right, so they're degenerate. They're they're mongrel. If we take kind of Lovecraft's language about the these people, they're not racially pure. They're not pure white, although Portuguese. Um, so it's a mixed group, and they're working class. They're marginalized people. Right, they're the they're the underclass. They're the global underclass of the time. They're the wasted lives, the unwanted, unnecessary people. Um, maybe not entirely seamen, of course, necessary, but they're hidden, and and through their hiddenness are a bit marginalized. Now, what do they believe? Well, we know they worship the great old ones. Quote, they worshipped, so they say, the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men and who came to the young world out of the sky. These old ones were gone now inside the earth and under the sea, but their dead bodies had told their secrets and dreams to the first men who formed a cult which had never died. So that's, as best we can tell, the origin of this cult. It goes way back. Um, but what are they really after? Now, most of these people don't, say and they kind of blame the violence on the great black-winged ones and these monsters and things like that but there's one guy this old mestizo mestizo being people who are of mixed spanish and native american probably some african blood in them right his name is castro he's super old he dies actually between this and the final discovery of our narrator in part three but he's he's an old guy, and he's admitting he's willing to tell the, a little bit of truth. Apparently, he's been with this cult a long time. And he says, he says quite a lot. He kind of confesses it all. Like he has nothing to lose. And essentially, he says is that these cults, these great old ones, Cthulhu and others are kind of hinted at, provide worldly freedom. And, and in some sense, eternal life. It's kind of like the Innsmouth promise, too. In the Innsmouth, it's a similar promise. Like, I will give you in this world meaning, existence, you know, something you're missing, right? Maybe you lose out on eternal life. Maybe you lose your soul, right? But you get earthly freedom. Quote, then the liberated old ones would teach them the new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves and all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Meanwhile, the cult, by appropriate rights, must keep alive the memory of those ancient ways and shadow forth the prophecy of their return. Now, in a sense, the ritual seemed to live out this orgy of freedom, literally in an orgy in, the, in, in murder in the case of the New Orleans cult, right? So I urge you all to read a book I've certainly mentioned before called cultures of darkness by brian palmer because he talks about under you know underground traditions 
throughout history. In fact, there's another book called Lipstick Traces, which is about the origin of punk, that sort of gets into this theme kind of in a different way. But it's there too, is this desire of of the marginalized underclass, whether they're witches. I mean, I'm talking about uh, cultures of darkness, whether it's witches or you know miners in Imperial Africa controlled by the British uh, or Haitian slaves, who of course rumor is rumor has it plunged themselves to the devil before the slave revolt that ultimately led to the ending of slavery in Haiti and the liberation of that country from the French. Pirates, um, but then into organized crime. He deals with so many different things, you know, Venetian masquerade, all these different cultures of darkness, he calls them, right? Cultures that exist under the cover of, you know, hidden from light, whether it's literal night, usually it was night, but sometimes just metaphoric night. He uses the term metaphoric night throughout the book. The Cthulhu cult is in this metaphoric night, is my claim. And it's something that can be attractive to the working class because it offers something the capitalist world doesn't. The capitalist world only offers for them slavery, marginalization, poverty, and, and suffering. And the Cthulhu cult, as horrible as it is, and as much as they have to seem to apparently have to sell their soul to be part of it, offers something else. It offers worldly freedom and liberation, right? Something that even the Christians can't provide. The Christians can provide you life, you know, eternal life in the in the afterworld, but not in this world. So there's a promise in this world of freedom, and I think that's what's so crazy radical about Castro. And and you know, I'm I'm on the side that yes, Lovecraft was a racist and a xenophobe and and horrible in so many ways, right? But as we remember from like the Reanimator, right? The narrator thinks this reagent can't work on black folk because they're so different. They're racially other. It turns out the reagent does work on black folk, right? Lovecraft subverts his own racism in that story. Um, I think a lot of people don't really catch on to that, but I think most people who study it carefully are aware of this. And enough people have talked about it that it's hard to, you shouldn't, you should be aware of this inversion by now if, if you're not. I'm pretty sure I mentioned it in this podcast uh, back when I did Reanimator. Um, in the same way, there's an inversion here, right? Like the, this working class is dangerous and powerful, right? And and kind of attractive. I mean, there's something to this if you're part of these marginalized folks. Now, at the end of the day, I know Lovecraft is like build the wall stop these people it's horrible right he's kind of on the side of lagrasse at the end of the day and he's kind of on the side of our narrator saying burn these notes let's forget about this and hide this and ignore it but there's a subversion here which i think is really something we have to grapple with all right enough about lagrasse and and um castro for now the rest of this chapter deals with uh, our narrator going to visit uh, Wilcox. And there's this wilcross Lagrasse connection that, that, that Angle, Angel, Angle? Angle figured out. So our narrator kind of follows it up and seeks out Wilcox. And here's a little bit more about his vision and his imagination and his curiosity and all that. He even goes to visit New Orleans. And Castro's dead. 
but he is able to question some of the cultists and he's trying to seek some kind of reconciliation. So this is like the most our narrator does in the whole story, really, except until the climax, you know, to kind of figure this out. But it's kind of like at this point in the story, he sort of says, okay, I've kind of done all I could. This is really interesting from an anthropological point of view. Maybe I'll write a paper. Maybe I'll, I'll do my own research on this later. But he does get to be freaked out. And he starts to think maybe these cultists kind of murdered his uncle right quote the one thing i began to suspect which now i fear i know is my uncle's death was far from natural he fell in a narrow hill street leading up from an ancient waterfront swarming with foreign mongrels after a careless push from a negro sailor i did not forget the mixed blood and marine pursuits of the cult members of louisiana and would not be surprised to learn of secret methods and poison needles as ruthless as the anciently known as the cryptic rites and beliefs okay so that takes us into part three, Madness from the Sea. Um, I think this is actually the least interesting of the three chapters, but it's, of course, essential to putting everything together because what we have here and what our narrator says we have here is a really interesting coincidence and some fascinating connections. But ultimately, we got a weird cult and we got these weird events for a two-week period and we got Wilcox and... There seems to be something there, but it, it could be kind of reduced to anthropology or, or kind of the same way we might talk about witches, right? You know, yeah, many people believe in witches, but it doesn't mean that witches are real, right? It doesn't mean there's anything really behind it. It's just a cultural phenomenon, right? And that's kind of where our narrator is at this point. And what happens in the third part is he realizes, no, there was something behind this. And he gets this from the story of this of this uh the sailor the sailor named gustav johansson okay so now it's all accidental that's what's kind of freaky about this is he's just like going through his life and he comes across a newspaper from april 18 1925 newspaper comes. so this is two weeks after that april 2nd when the dream shut down right uh, when the dream stopped and the weird event stopped. Now, specifically, Lovecraft actually deals with the fact that this was not picked up by the clipping agency, this story, because apparently Angel told the clipping agency to find all the weird stuff from this period of time, but they missed this story. And he just sees it like, you know, going through new stuff in a, new, in a museum or something. And it's a, it's like a throwaway piece of newspaper newspaper clipping uh or a page of the newspaper and the, the article is mystery derelict fallen at fallen at sea so the vigilant arrives with helpless armed new zealand yacht in tow one survivor and dead man found aboard so then we get this really long newspaper accounts like two pages where we get the story where this uh ship the villagent left valparaiso March 25th, which was around the time these dreams started up, right? A little bit after. Uh, and on April 2nd, it was driven considerably south of her course by exceptionally high winds and monster waves. Uh, finally, the derelict was found about a, 10 days later on April 12th, right? Now, the story is that... So the vigilance, the ship that finds the derelict, right? There's three ships involved here. The vigilance, the one that finds the derelict. The derelict is uh, the the Emma, and they just had this fight 
like when they're found, it's found after a brawl with uh, a ship called the Alert, which is manned, quote, manned by a queer and evil-looking crew of Kanakas and half-castes. So again, we got this this many-headed Hydra, this global working class emerging in this story, in this case in these Kanakas who have been somehow driven mad. Kanakas being kind of Pacific Islanders. It's an old kind of racist term for Pacific Islanders. But they've been kind of whipped up in a frenzy by the same thing that's driving everyone nuts across the, the world at this time, right? At least the sensitive types, right? And the other cool thing here is that they, the survivor, who's this guy, uh, uh, Johansson, had the statue, which is similar to the one that they found in the New Orleans, similar to the one that was being worshipped in, in by the Eskimos, and similar to... To the picture in Wilcox's bar relief. So he finally is like, that's weird. <laughs> this seems to connect to what I've been studying. He kind of connects the dates of this story to the dreams and to the clippings. So he kind of fits it all together and says, okay, I got to go figure this out. So he goes like, he follows the, the locations in the story to, I think it goes to like, San Francisco first, and from there he's sent to find Gustav Johansson, who's returned to Oslo, to Norway. And he goes all the way to Oslo to track down and talk to this guy, uh, Johansson. And Johansson's already dead, but luckily, and luckily for our story, and I guess unlucky for our poor narrator's sanity, um, and perhaps our own, if we're reading this a little bit too earnestly, he left his note, he left his narrative, right? This manuscript. Um, and the manuscript tells the story of, uh, well, it tells a lot of things. It, it tells basically the story of how after fighting with these Kanakas, the survivors of the crew find Relay, find Cth like they actually see Cthulhu and Johansson like drives the ship into Cthulhu, right? Banishing him in some way, right? And then, of course, that's kind of the joke about this story is that this god from that's been sleeping for billions of years is so easily put back to sleep just by a, a boat, right? But, I mean, whatever, right? That's what's really creepy about this is all, all these things get put together in the, in the narrator's mind, right? But there are things about Relay that kind of connect to themes I've been talking about here. And listen to this. Um, then driven ahead by curiosity in their captured yacht under Johansson's command, the men sight a great stone pillar sticking out of the sea in south latitude 47 degrees 90 minutes, west longitude 126 degrees 43 minutes. Came upon a coastline of mingled mud, ooze, and weedy cyclopean masonry, which could be nothing less than the tangible substance of Earth's supreme terror, the nightmare corpse city of Relay, that was built in measureless eons behind history by the vast loathsome shapes that seeped down from the dark stars. There lay great Cthulhu and his hordes, hidden in green slimy vaults, and sending out at last, after cycles of incalculable, after cycles incalculable, the thoughts that spread fear to the dreams of the sensitive and called imperiously to the faithful to come on a pilgrimage of liberation and restoration. All of this Johansson did not suspect, but God knows he saw enough. So the theme of pilgrimage of liberation and restoration. So the sensitive are driven by dreams and, and kind of driven to terror by their dreams. The 
the faithful, the cultists, driven by pilgrimage of liberation and restoration. Once again, liberty being the value that leads people to embrace the great old ones. Right? Um, he gets a little stabbed here at the working class saying, well, they wouldn't know what futurism is or they wouldn't know what Cubanism, Cubanism, Cubanism is, but, you know, that's what he was seeing in this, like, Cyclopean architecture. A little bit of a stab, but um, that's kind of it. Now, the ending of the story is this kind of everything comes together and our narrator is totally freaked out and he says, all right, I'm putting this in with the Cthulhu cult notes Cthulhu cult notes of Angel, but when I die, which I'll be soon, it's kind of like Dagon in that way where the guy's like, I'm going to die soon. Uh, there, it's a little bit more clear why he's going to kill himself. Here, we don't know why he's going to die. He thinks he's going to might be knocked off by that nautical-looking Negro from the first page of the story. Perhaps that's it. But so I'm not going to live long. But when I die, burn these notes. And, um, you know, why he doesn't burn them, I don't know. He can't bring himself to burn them, I guess. But, of course, he didn't because here we are reading them, right? So... Kind of another kind of jokey undercurrent of the story is that no one does the job of erasing it. In fact, it's not till we get to the case of Charles Dexter Ward, where, I mean, narratively, he's not stuck in this trap. I mean, here, the story only works if the notes survive, right, in our fictional universe. In the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which I think is our best example of someone successfully burying the past and abolishing it, right, that's what the whole story comes down to. Right. The whole last third of the story is about how do we abolish the past, this horrific past. I mean, it's really spooky stuff in that story, but it's all about burning it down. Right. And hiding it for the sake of the family, but also sake for just, you know, for the sake of the sanity of everyone else. Erase it forever. Um, that's a later story, which we'll we'll get to a little bit later, a few weeks from now. But uh, for now, we're just we're still in Cthulhu. Here, the, abol the abolishing the truth doesn't come about, but it kind of has to be that way because the story has to exist for us to read it. But the ending, you got a lot of creepy language about, you know, sometime he'll come back and he's still there and Cthulhu lives on and all this stuff. Um, but anyways, that's my thoughts. I just, I don't want to, I really wanted to focus on my overall interpretation of this kind of working class uh, networks of knowledge and and action not just knowledge in this point it's kind of moved on to to a concrete action that threatens us right the working class is powerful not just in red hook not just in uh, uh, like the area around that church in the in the moon bog right it's globally strangling the earth i mean it has this global power right and we're not going to see I think a working class force this powerful again, maybe until Innsmouth, right? Uh, now the Chagas in the Mountain of Madness is another kind of angle of that, and I think we can include that, I suppose, as a, as a disgruntled working class seeking its revenge. Um, so I have no problem with with adding them, but but it's really maybe Dunwich. Dunwich is kind of a neglected town too. So maybe Dunwich. We'll get to Dunwich soon, too. Um, so anyways, that's going to be all I'm going to say about Call of Cthulhu. Uh, do read the story if you haven't read it yet. It's a wonderful story. It's it's 
great. It's just wonderfully put together. Spooky, if you're sensitive enough. You know, it's got its few a few problems. Maybe like the climax is a little it's a little anticlimactic that this Norwegian sailor is able to bring down Cthulhu or put him back to sleep. But whatever. Um, it's it's Lovecraft kind of had to work with what he was able to put together for the story to work. Um, but I think in almost every other way, it's like a perfect story almost. So next time I will we'll look at the other story that Lovecraft wrote in the fall of 1926 called The Silver Key. Uh, and that will lead us right into, after a brief uh, side quest with a, a story or two, I think Pikmin's model. Maybe it's just Pikmin's model. But then we'll jump right into Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. So Silver Key, uh, the next Randolph Carter tale. Uh, we've already seen Randolph Carter in the Statement of Randolph Carter, The Unnameable, and was it just those two? Um, yeah, I think it's those two so far. But... We'll see him again in the Silver Key. And the Silver Key is maybe the most important Randolph Carter story until the dream quest of Unknown Kadath. Uh, so that's up next. So if you're reading along, go check out the Silver Key. And in a few days, I'll be uploading my thoughts about uh, that story. Um, so um, let me know what you think, though, especially about this overall thesis I'm providing on The Call of Cthulhu. Give me your thoughts. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. You can find me at Twitter um, at EvanLampy1. Uh, someone beat me to that name, I guess. Um, but contact me. Leave your comments below on Podbean or on, leave a review on iTunes. Any way you want to contact me or let me know what you think about this podcast, I would be greatly appreciated. Uh, so thanks as always for listening. And I will see you next time where I give you my thoughts on the silver key.